You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for being here. Welcome to the Parsnip Ship. My name is Ivan E. Devery. And I'm Eric Borlaug. And this is the Parsnip Ship again. And we just want to thank you guys for being here. It's so, so greatly appreciated that we get to do this in front of a live but intimate audience and meet new people, make new friends and relationships. And where are we tonight, Ivan? We are in San Francisco, California. <laughs> it's my first time in San Francisco because it's my first time in California. Um, and it's exciting for me because it's this is my hometown, so. Coming back to the roots. <laughs> that, to that. <laughs> less, apparently that's less exciting when someone goes back home. Gotcha, yep. guys. Gotcha, done. <laughs> um, so tonight we heard from our musical guest, Bobby, which was awesome. Really set the mood for a nice and chill evening. And now we will be hearing the play, The Strings, The Thing, by Veronica Chu. Right? Correct. Yes. Yes. Um, Which is a two-person play. It's basically a really, really great and humorous and lively conversation. Um, And it's short and lovely. And we absolutely loved it when we first read it. Yeah, um, it's a really interesting conversation with some some slight like magical elements to it that are really exciting um, and some really freaking cool stage directions. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be an awesome an awesome play for you all. Yeah. So uh, sit back, drink lots, and enjoy the show. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you. <laughs> as part of uh, the SF Olympians Festival, which is a festival of staged readings that goes on every year um, here in SF. Uh, and each year, it's all, it's all staged readings of Greek myth adaptations. And every year, they choose a theme. And last year, the theme was monsters. And they basically come up with you know 30 monsters or something like that and uh, kind of have slots for each one. So like the Minotaur is going to be a one act and, you know, Jerion is also going to be a one act, but then there's going to be like nymphs that are going to be like 10 minute plays, but they have all these slots and you basically can propose to do, um, to do a, an adaptation and you just send in your proposal and they either accept you or they don't. And uh, they accepted my proposal for the Minotaur, which I decided to do um, with exploring being mixed race and specifically being half Asian. Thank you. 
The Strings, The Thin, a Minotaur play by me, Veronica Chu. Characters, Aster. In her pockets on any given day, you may discover an extra hair tie, toothpicks, a pen and tiny notebook, a book of stamps, lip balm, slightly squishy, and a particularly pleasant stone from her last hike. Also, a single $20 bill is tucked under the sole of her left shoe, just in case. D. D's pockets may contain, but are not limited to, matches, animal stickers, a feather, a map, caramels, slightly squishy, a poem, bits of tangerine peel, $10 in Sacagawea coins, and a few particularly pleasant seashells from a recent adventure. Seven, a junction in the center of a surprisingly impressive hay bale maze. At least two passages lead off in unknown directions. This convening point teeters between cozy and claustrophobia-inducing. While the walls are high enough that not even an abnormally tall person could peek over, footholds exist between bales, making a gregarious clamber upward and over possible. The gloom of impending night seeps in from above, and a swath of fall fog soups its way through the curves of the labyrinth. It smells of mud and damp, sweet, slow straw rot. Not necessarily gross, not necessarily pleasant. The kind of odor that becomes nostalgic as soon as it is gone. Aster is lying down, back on the dirt, legs up on a wall, arms out, eyes to the sky. With one hand, Aster restlessly fidgets with a large hand-knitted scarf lying in the dirt beside her. She threads her fingers through the holes between stitches. She waits. Nearby, watching, sits a hollow head of a minotaur costume, seemingly abandoned and decapitated. Not a high-quality mask, but creepy enough to scare the shit out of a sensitive child and leave them squeamish around full-body costumes for years to come. <laughs> Stillness. Whistling is heard from afar. It grows louder. Footsteps begin to accompany the noise. Dee enters, striding jauntily atop the walls of the maze, looking down on either side. On Dee's back rides a mighty and well-adorned backpack stuffed to the brim. Dee spots Aster and continues strolling on high until Dee's feet are directly above Aster's. Dee leans over the edge. They take in each other's faces. Found ya? You made it! <laughs> Smiles of hello. Darling, you look like shit. <laughs> Thanks. Are you okay? Oh, it's good to see you. Splendid labyrinth you've got here. Glad you're finally experiencing it. You look so handsome in the moonlight. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think it also means we won't get to see our meteor shower. No tardids for us? Pity. Aster clambers up onto the wall and sits next to Dee. They survey the night. Yeah. Stupid full moon, looking all luminous and magical and shit. Quite. How dare it. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Do you think I'd miss our annual nighttime catch-up? Well, I know you get busy and you have other places hey, to go. <laughs> it's good to see you, too. How was the harvest? Fruitful. Aster moans at the pond. Uh, <laughs> Everything went vine. Oh. <laughs> Better than vine, it went great. I don't know why I asked. <laughs> Actually, it was pretty exciting this year. We got these three pygmy goats to help with the weeding, and I got to herd them around. Teeny, teeny goats. But, oh, so ornery. You know, especially the literalist one, Moira. You try to get her to go this way, and she's like, Bleh. And I, and she, I mean, you're like, hey! And she's like, Bleh. And then it was like, that was rude, Moira. And then she's like, Bleh. <laughs> How's your aunt doing? Ah, plucking along. 
a little bummed at how dry it's been this year, but I think that the yield will still be tasty. Hmm. Oh, speaking of the vineyard, I brought us a little something. D on the shoulders, the aforementioned conspicuously well-adorned, well-stuffed, and well-loved backpack. D unclasps it and begins to shuffle about the contents. Ooh, I brought some vino too, but it's... Two buck Chuck. It's not two bucks anymore. What? It's two fifty. Alas, tragedy lives with us past the Greeks. Ugh, truth. <laughs> well, let's start with this. With a flourish, Dee presents an unlabeled wine bottle from the depths of the bag and hands it to Aster. Ooh. With similar aplomb, Dee extracts a corkscrew and passes it to Aster, who proceeds to open the bottle. Dee continues to rummage in the bag and eventually furnishes two very small handmade ceramic objects. I brought cups. Aw, they're so little. <laughs> they are. Ridiculously so. Dee carefully pours the wine into the lute crisply little cups. What's the name of this one? Blood of Christ Syrah. <laughs> I bet the marketing team loved that. Yeah, they're changing it to Swan Song Syrah, but you know the truth. They raise their tiny, tiny tumblers to toast. Drink of this wine. It is my Ansamoyber's finest. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> they clink their wee vessels and drink. So... Mm. This is your spot? Yep, this is it. A hearty month of pacing back and forth with that thing on my head. She indicates the minotaur mess. Waiting for people to find me. Sounds fun. Patting the hay bale she is sitting on. I can't wait to tear this motherfucker down. <laughs> well, when does it happen? Strike begins at dawn. So soon. Halloween's over. No one wants to pay to intentionally lose themselves anymore. Mm. It's a melancholy feeling. To dismantle something you spent so long on, isn't it? On the contrary, nothing feels better than to destroy something when it's time. Remember when we burned all of our college papers in that bonfire on the beach? <laughs> How could I forget? Those cops were so nice about it. Well, you charmed them. Did I? You offered them mini pies as soon as they strolled up. Oh, that's right. Our mini pies of collegiate accomplishment. Doing a kind but accurate impression of D. Oh, good evening, officers. May I offer you some miniature pies to celebrate our recently acquired bachelor's degrees? Our caps and gowns helped us seem a little less insane. I'm pretty sure chanting, yippee Kaye, we're in so much debt, may have canceled that out. We should have found something that rhymed better. It seemed appropriate at the time. That it did. <laughs> Aster refills their preposterously mini mugs. So, what's your next grand adventure? Hmm? Well, you're always off on some illustrious exploit after one's finished. Off to see the world break hearts, charm government officials. Oh, yeah, well... Don't be humble. Out <laughs> with it. Where to this time? Actually... I'm going to backpack through Europe. Aha! I knew it! That's incredible! They hug in a flurry of congratulatory excitement. Aster pulls away suddenly. Wait. Europe? Yeah, Europe. Aster makes a face. <laughs> what? That seems too tame for you. You're not paddling through Amazon or trekking through the Sahara? Well, I've done those. Aster shakes her head in the way that friends do when they love you and are jealous at the same time. When are you leaving? Next week. Oh. How long will you be gone? Until March, unless I decide to stay. Damn. D, all winter you're going to freeze your ass off. Yep. <laughs> you're supposed to go in spring when it's beautiful and temperate. I like seeing cities in winter. Less tourists, less noise. Uh, all I really want to do is sit in museums, wrap myself in my coat, and, you know, 
Take it all in. It's so cool that you can just go do that. Just up and go and explore. What else is life for? Aster thinks about this. Someday, we should go somewhere together. Yeah, I'd like that. They clink their inanely itty cups together. It's a weird thing. Friendship, as you, you know, get older. (laughs) It's harder work, that's for sure. It's just strange to realize that this is how it'll be from now on, you know? Never quite living in the same place. Everyone's always off doing other things, living their lives. Yeah. And when you're young, everyone is so accessible and open, and somehow it becomes difficult to make the effort or be vulnerable to new possibilities as you grow up. For the record, I'm planning on keeping you. It's just... We're going to be shipmates for the rest of our lives, Aster. Our boats just may be a bit far apart for a while. Thanks, buddy. Dee replenishes their tastelessly teensy tasters. Aster grows contemplative. Dee casually retrieves the harmonica from a pocket and begins playing a tune slowly, and not necessarily well. The noise is comforting somehow. Dee, I did something terrible today. Oh, yeah? Really bad. I'm sure it's not. I don't know what came over me. Do you want to talk about it? No. All right. They sit in silence. They drink their wine. Dee refills their untenably tiny glasses. More silence. So, okay, so what you have to understand is that it was really, really hot out today. Like, just blazing heat. And you know how I get all irritable when it's hot out? I, I do. So it's hot. Okay, so it's hot. The sun is beating down on me, and I've been sitting in this maze for four hours. Rio called in six, so I have to work the full shift. I'm sweaty, and it's hard to breathe with this thing on my head. Indicating the minotaur mask. Okay. Okay. A couple walks by, and it's an old man. Mid-60s, corpulent. You know when people just reek of money and rabid conservatism? Indeed, I do. And he's with this young Asian woman around our age. Tiny little dress, totally inappropriate shoes for the occasion, matching purse. And he's got his arm around her, tight. And they stop at this crossroads, look around and deliberate, and she points towards one passage, which happens to be the right one, and he says no, and they go the wrong way. Ten minutes later, they come back around, and the same thing happens. She points, he says no, and they're off. Fifteen minutes later, they're back. She points, and he says, what do you know? You know nothing. You listen to me, and they're off and they're back, and they're off, and they're back seven fucking times. And the worst part is she doesn't even get upset. He says terrible, terrible things to her, and she just takes it. And I am just up to my ears with rage. Up to your horns? Up to my horns with rage. And I think if they come back around one more time, I am going to punch that guy in the balls. And that's when I start my period. Oh, shit. (laughs) So I text the people in the main barn to let them know that I have to go to the bathroom, but I'm not supposed to be on my phone because it ruins the illusion, though I'm assuming menstruating right through my costume would also, you know, like, ruin the illusion. So they're angry with me for texting, and I say that I have to wait until the gladiator joust in half an hour before I can walk out, and blood is just dripping, you know? Oh, I know. You know? Just, Just dripping down my leg and at this point this group walks by two dudes two bros following these two asian girls around who happen to be dressed in i kid you not that little slutty schoolgirl outfit skirt just above the snatch shirt unbuttoned far too far pigtails and giggling doing that 
breathy, flirty, I'm dumb and pretty, chase me giggle. She demonstrates the odious giggle. (laughs) 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 And these bros are just like, so you like boba tea, huh? And what's your favorite manga? And these girls are just like, oh. She demonstrates the odious giggle once more. (laughs) And these guys keep asking, but like, no, which anime is your favorite? And one of the girls finally admits, oh, I don't watch those. And these dudes get all offended and say, what? What kind of Asian are you? And I lose it. I just fucking lose it. I yelled and I screamed and I cursed out those people. What did you say? I may or may not have called them misogynistic, racist, closed-minded, egotistical fuckheads who jerk off to fetish porn so often they'll never be capable of true human interaction, and they'll end up alone on the internet talking to other socially inept, objectifying cock goblins while they all watch trashy anime and try to pick up 14-year-old girls in chat rooms who aren't really 14-year-old girls and shape off their dicks fapping all over their crusty laptops until they die. (laughs) (laughs) Cock goblins? Yeah, pop <laughs> goblins. I may or may not have also screamed at the girls and told them to fucking stand up for yourself, your people. You don't have to conform to their idea of what is sexy or not. Just be your beautiful goddamn selves, you ignorant feminism underminers. Oh my. <laughs> so that happened. And then I turned around and these two little kids have been watching. They're like this tall. Itty bitty, all backed up against the hay, shaking, and one of these kids had wet herself. I scared the pee out of a child. And it wasn't enough, even one of those motherfucking assholes, those douche nozzles just laughed. They laughed and laughed. Motherfuckers. Oh, darling, douche nozzles? Yeah. Uh. Douche nozzles. The kids ran away crying, and of course, I couldn't run after them to apologize or anything. I. I can't believe I did that. I traumatized those poor kids who just wanted to have a fun day. I'm a monster. A moment. It sounds like who you really scared was yourself. Aster looks at Dee. I know. Deep. Stillness. Dee rummages through the bag and pulls out an... Avocado? No thanks. Dee additionally extracts a knife and a salt shaker. I didn't know I was capable of that. That meanness. Dee proceeds to slice the avocado in half. And the weird part is, is that I'm not as angry with those men as I am with those women. Something about Asian women. I hate them. Dee twists the avocado apart. I hate them. Dee, I... I think I'm racist against Asians. <laughs> I don't like them. And I'm half Asian. Dee looks up for a moment, then proceeds to smack the pit with the blade of the knife and pop it out. I don't think I've ever admitted that to anyone before. Even myself. Oh, what? That you're half Asian? (laughs) No. The whole internalized racism bit. Ah. Descores the flesh of the avocado. Well, it makes sense with all that stuff that went on with your dad. I just don't feel Asian at all, you know? I mean, I look like this. It's half of my blood. But I speak German, not Indonesian. I was raised on bratwurst and sauerkraut, for fuck's sake. Hmm. 
he shakes some salt on the avocado. But people look at me and they assume all sorts of shit, especially men. D magically makes a spoon appear. Yellow fever is a real and rampant thing. It's so gross to fetishize people just because of their supposed race and to be attracted to the idea that someone must be timid and obedient and exotic and submissive. Scooping out the green flesh. It's disgusting. It's colonialism. Are you sure you don't want some? Referring to the avocado. I'm good. Thanks. And how is it that society has somehow sexualized Asian women, but completely desexualized Asian men? That's <laughs> fucked up, too. Indeed it is. Rubbing her face with her hands. Ugh, it feels so gross! What do you hate about them? What? Uh, Asians. Why do you hate them? Um... I don't know. Picking at some hay? I just don't understand the culture, I guess. I don't agree with any society that puts men above women, where women are denigrated to the household chores and are just supposed to be quiet and smile and let the men make all the conversations and the m money and the decisions. Dee looks at Aster. Okay, you're right. You're right, that's, that's every fucking society. Dee nods and returns to snacking. Oh, it's the light, breathy voices. Mm. And the pastel scrunchies. And the keeping plastic wrapping on everything. Dee looks at Aster balefully. <laughs> Get it? Balefully? Cause, cause they're in a hay bale maze? Never mind. <laughs> You're right. That's just a stereotype too. People are always more complex than the generalizations we impose on them. I get it. I know. And yeah, I'm creeped out that some people have dated me because they were expecting me to be Asian and spent the majority of our relationship trying to get me to be who they were expecting me to be. And yeah, I'm, I'm hurt that my father left my mother to be with an Asian woman half his age and thereby abandoned all of us for a society we will never fit in. Aster becomes more and more agitated, eventually grabbing at the bales, punching and kicking them. And yeah, I'm frustrated because he never taught me that cultural language, so I feel like a complete outsider. And yeah, I am totally projecting all of my feelings of neglect and inadequacy on the whole of Eastern culture. And yeah, I'm probably no more racist than the next person. I've got plenty of Asian friends who I love dearly. This is just the way that I happen to be dealing with the fact that I feel completely abandoned and insufficient. And it's easier to feel angry than to feel sad. In the bouts of her rage, Aster has managed to rip one of her sleeves. Ha have you ever considered learning about it? How does one educate oneself on Indonesian culture? Visit, Visit Indonesia? Indonesia? I've thought about it. But it's not like I have any ties to that side of my family anymore. No one teaches Indonesian classes. What, do I just walk into a restaurant and say, Hey there, beg your pardon, would you mind informing me on the finer points of my heritage so I can stop despising myself? It'd be a start. Who would I be doing this for, though? Who would I be sharing my findings with, anyway? Uh, maybe it would bring you some perspective to gain some understanding of their way of thinking and living. Or maybe I should stop trying to force myself to try and relate to something that I simply don't happen to be. Could be. Blood is just blood. I'm an American, right? I'm sorry, I'm totally ranting. No worries. You've got a vent, vent! No, I'm sorry! I didn't want tonight to be one of those nights where I do all the talking and the angsting and you have to endure <laughs> me being whiny. Having scraped one half of the avocado shell clean, Dee moves on to the second one. If you have to purge, purge. Get it all out of your system. I'm happy. I'm having dinner. What are friends for but to deal with the icky stuff? Well, they bring wine, too. True. 
<laughs> Thanks, G. You betcha. D fills up their diminutive demitasses. A small silence. You know how there's inevitably five old Asian women sitting at the front of the bus holding on for dear life? Yeah. So small. Rattling around in their seats with their hats pulled down over their ears. <laughs> Sometimes they start talking to me and I can't respond. And it's probably just my interpretation, but they look disappointed. And I feel disappointed too. Yeah, I bet they've got stories. For a while I considered learning about Japanese culture. I like the Japanese. They've got ramen and Totoro and rock gardens. I take those things. I can get behind that. But I can't pretend to be Japanese. I can't just trade one Asian culture for a, a whole other one. That would be cultural appropriation. Yes. Yes, yes, yes it, it would. would. <laughs> Astra looks down and notices she has torn part of her sleeve. Shit, I ripped my shirt. Here, let me fix that for you. Okay, you don't have to do that. I know. Dee reaches for the bag and digs through it. What, right now? What else? <laughs> Here, hold my avocado. From the depths of Dee's bag emerges a skein of embroidery floss, a needle, and a pair of scissors. I don't have thread, but I do have embroidery floss. <laughs> Why do you have embroidery floss? So I can embroider. Duh. <laughs> Eat up, I don't want any more. I didn't think anyone embroidered anymore. I do. Prepare to be embroidered. <laughs> Give me that sleeve. Aster wriggles an arm out of her shirt and flops the sleeve over to Dee. Dee licks the end of the floss and threads it through the eye of the needle. Dee deftly knots the end of the line and begins sewing up the rip. It is a slow, quiet, and intimate endeavor. There can be beauty in simply watching someone carry out a mundane task with grace. There can also be boredom. Go for the grace. Embrace the poetry. Aster nibbles on the avocado, Dee sews. The thread goes in, the thread comes out. The night seems to weigh in more heavily than before, darkening a trifle. Dee begins to finish up the procedure. Almost there. Dee creates a knot with care to secure the seam. Aster licks the spoon clean and wipes it on her pants. Dee? Reaching for the scissors. Hmm? Dee opens the shears to cut the remaining thread. My dad died. Snip. What? My dad, he's dead. What? When? Day before yesterday. Oh, honey. Why didn't you tell me? I don't know. Babe, I'm, I'm sorry. No. No, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, sure. I'm just not sure how to feel about it, you know? We haven't talked in seven years or anything. What happened? I'm not sure. A heart attack or a stroke. Blood either went where it wasn't supposed to be or wasn't where it needed to be. His wife's English isn't good. I'm surprised she even told us. Fuck. More wine? Okay. Astra shakily refills their foolishly feeble flagons. When's the funeral? I'm not, I'm not going. Oh, were you invited? The last time we spoke, he told me I wasn't his daughter anymore. So how am I supposed to go and stand there and pretend like this man was a good person? You don't have to. How do I sit in the same room as his new wife and all his Indonesian friends? He abandoned us. He cheated. He lied. 
Yeah, I know he wasn't all that bad. But if he didn't make up half of my DNA, nobody would expect me to give a shit about him. But because he's my father, I should have tried to reconcile or made the effort. How do you make the effort with someone who's decided that you're not family anymore? Why would you try to make a relationship work with someone who doesn't even know you? I don't know. Aster reaches for the knitted object in the dirt. I made him this scarf for Christmas years ago when we were meeting at coffee shops once a week, trying to make things work. Trying to be polite? It's n nice. It's an atrocity. That's one word for it. But you made it for him. Yeah, and he left it there. What? At the coffee shop. He left it. Maybe he just forgot? Okay, how do you forget something that your child has made for you, even if it is a complete abomination? And there's the other. I don't care who you are. If your kid makes you a macaroni necklace, you put it around your neck for a minute, and you act like it means something to you. Those goddamn glitter noodles are love, for fuck's sake. I don't think he ever knew me at all. He just shut me out as soon as I began defending my mom. It's like I wasn't even his child. I was too different somehow. But he made me. I'm half of him. Who could possibly be closer to you than your own creation? The Minotaur mask sighs. Your friends. The family you choose to have. Yeah. I have to wonder if it was a cultural barrier. Maybe if we all spoke the same language, it would have been easier. Language is a weird thing. Right? Yeah, you know how you access completely separate ways of thinking in different languages because you only have certain words or ways of phrasing it at your disposal? You, you literally express yourself as a different person because certain concepts just don't translate. So true. All of our first languages were different. My dad's was Indonesian's. Mom's was German, mine was English. Maybe if I'd been taught Indonesian too, I'd have a better idea of where he was going with certain things. What language did they speak to each other? German initially, when they lived there. But after moving to the States, they started speaking English too. Can you imagine being in a relationship where both of you are using your second language to communicate? Yeah, and that that second language is your kid's first? Weird. Weird. Oster drains her drink manically, suddenly angrier. She holds her head in her hands. Dee pours more wine into those goddamn microscopic goblets. Aster pulls at her hair and lets out a groan of frustration. <sighs> handing Aster her cup. A droplet for your thought. I'm so angry with him! How do you stop being angry with a dead person? I don't know, I'm still pretty cross at Hitler. There's so much left unresolved. <laughs> And there's no way to resolve it. I mean, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be hurt. I don't want to be angry and hurt anymore. I want to be done with it. Nothing is going to change but your attitude towards the past. You've just got to let it all go and move forward. How do you let go? You, you just do. Aster begins tugging at the scarf and grunting, frustrated. <gasps> you all right? No, I'm freaking out! She lets out a loud, pained yell and chucks the scarf in the dark. What do you feel like doing? I want to kick him in the face. I want to light everything on fire. I want to take my shoes off. Don't take your shoes off! Aster struggles with her left sneaker. It is painful, but not unfunny to watch. It is the panic and inefficiency of movement that comes with feeling everything, everything, everything all of a sudden. She finally wrestles it off and attempts to hurl it over the wall. Yeah! It hits the wall and thuds back to the ground instead. 
She tries again. It, she fails again. She tries again. This time it goes over. She looks at her other foot, still shooed. She tugs at it a little, but then gives up. She sits down, defeated and pathetic. The minotaur mask looks at her disapprovingly. She kicks it with her shooed foot. Do you feel better? A little. Do you want to light a candle? Aster nods slightly and solemnly. Dee reaches for the bag once more. Aster, realizing Dee has brought a candle along too, laughs at how absurd her friend is. <laughs> Are you prepared for everything? But with the exception of an alien invasion? Uh, and if this place catches fire. Ooh. Ooh, not funny. <laughs> Dee hands a box of matches to Aster. You know the way out, right? I hope we don't have to find out in a hurry. <laughs> Aster strikes a match and lights the candle. The night seems to deepen around them, even as the flame warms their faces. They enjoy their small fire. I was taught that family was the most important thing in the world. But when someone in your family abandons you, or you don't feel like a part of them, then what? Who are you then? If I may, play my I'm adopted card for a second. Please do. Okay, I, I totally get it. It's a weird thing. If you've met my family. I don't look like anyone. My folks adopted me thinking they couldn't conceive, but lo and behold, a few years later, they popped out my little brother. Of course, we're all really close. I wouldn't trade them for the world, but their smiles all curl the same way. You know, their, their eyes are all the same hue. My laugh is different, alien somehow, and I can't help but feel like an outsider in a tiny, undefinable way. <laughs> like, I'm on my own, in a way. We're all alone, ultimately. You think so? We're alone in our heads, in our, in our thoughts. And ultimately, we die. And that is probably the loneliest process there is, passing into the unknown by yourself even if others are with you. But you're going through what billions of others have before you. I, I like to think of it as the great unifier, you know, our mortality. What do you think happens afterwards? Oh, huge cosmic party. You just like <laughs> melt into everything else that has ever existed and delightfully dissolve back into the mush pot. Aster chuckles at her friend's happy <laughs> outlook at this prospect. <sighs> well, what do you think happens? Astra makes a game over noise. Blackout. Game over. I think this is it. I think this is all we have. They both become morose for a minute. They pick at the fallen pieces of straw and trace lines in the dirt. Sorry. I didn't mean to be so heavy tonight. I'd much rather be talking about dark things with you than inconsequential things with anyone else. I feel so I feel so bad about complaining about all this stuff too. It's it's not like I've ever been discriminated against. It's not like my dad ever hit me. So many people in the world are going through actual terrible things right now. That's true, but their trauma doesn't negate what you're feeling. You know, both exist. You don't have to feel guilty for hurting on top of everything else. Ugh. Half white people problems. <laughs> 
worried that no positive solid change is ever going to happen in the world because even people who have got it really good are too wrapped up in their own problems, however comparatively small, to help anyone else. I couldn't figure out how to get along with my own father. How can humans expect to collaborate and solve anything that's broken in this world? A silence as Aster sinks further into existentialism, and Dee remains placidly contemplative, enjoying the night. Oops. And I enjoy my beverage. <laughs> it's so frustrating. There is so much terrible stuff going on, and all I can do is talk about it. I mean, what are we doing here? Nothing is happening. We're just sitting around shooting the shit and drinking. I mean... I love spending time with you more than anything, but I feel like this too is a microcosm of everything that is wrong with the world in a lot of ways, you know? Hey, I think it's dangerous to let yourself get sucked up in the vortex of despair. The best we can do is spread the goodness around to people who need it when we can and give ourselves the liberty to enjoy a little bit of the goodness too. We are privileged enough to have an evening off, enjoying a beverage, sitting with friends, listening to each other. But, do you ever feel, you know, the great beast of sadness? <laughs> yes. They all look behind their shoulders. I, of course. You know, who doesn't? What do you do then? I run around in the woods at night, you know, raging and howling and romping, getting it all out, putting... Purging all the ugliness, the grossness, the fear, and then stop. Listen to the night and and think. It's so rad that we can think. You know, it's like, <laughs> sure, we may drive ourselves into corners and dead ends of thought, but at least we understand what a maze is. At least we can talk about it. At least we can sit together and, and share that feeling of, well, what the fuck, you know, with each other. You feel me? I feel ya. <laughs> There's a silence as they look at the night and appreciate the maze, so close to its demise. Dee reaches for the bag again and unties the ribbon from it. Dee knots the two ends of it together and begins to play Cat's Cradle. Aster, almost unconsciously, joins in, and they silently partake in this childhood activity, glad to have something to do with their hands. It's interestingly symbolic, don't you think? <laughs> what is? That you've been here playing the Minotaur. What do you mean? I mean, there just seem to be a lot of parallels going on here. Because I've been terrifying children in the middle of a labyrinth. No. <laughs> because you and the Minotaur are both mixed-raced and have daddy issues. <laughs> oh. Yeah. They manipulate the string from the candles figure to the manger figure. So am I going to get shanked in a maze too? Should I be on the lookout for some big burly dude named, uh... Theseus. That's right. Nah, I'm hoping for a more Ariadne ending for you. Who's that? The Minotaur's half-sister. Oh. Do you not know this myth? Not really. The pumpkin farm isn't really big on mythological accuracy. You don't say. They manipulate the string from the manger figure to the diamonds figure. Will you tell me about it? First, more wine. Aster transfers the string figure onto Dee's hands and splashes more libation into their laughably Lilliputian chalices. Go on then, spin us a yarn. 
Okay. So it all begins with a bull, a beautiful bull, white and large and graceful. Poseidon gives this bull to Minos, the king of Crete, to kill as a sacrifice to him. But when the time comes, Minos can't do it. So Poseidon gets super offended and curses Pasiphae, Minos' wife, with this massive lust for this bull. Stupid gods always punishing the women for some dude's fuck up. Well, uh, Pasiphae should have seen it coming. All the ladies in her family ended up cursed with vastly inappropriate crushes. Oh, well, that makes it all okay. So, Pasiphae is completely saturated in desire, and she thinks to herself, I have to fuck this bull. <laughs> so, she calls up her buddy, Daedalus, master craftsman. He, he's like the da Vinci of Greek mythology. He builds her this cow outfit. A costume. Yeah, mm -hmm. a super sexy one. And Pasiphae climbs inside it, and, and it works. The bull mates with her, and ta-da, the Minotaur is conceived. Okay, hold up. If the Minotaur's father is the bull, then why is he named after Minos? Why isn't he called the Pasitar? I'm not sure, but, you know, the Minotaur actually has a name. It's Asterios. Huh. That's interesting. What? Aster, Asterios. A bit weird, eh? Mm -hmm. Sure is. Hey, fuck you. I'm named after a flower, okay? Everything is symbolic enough already. Okay, okay. okay go on. Um, okay, so Minos is so ashamed that his wife birthed this monstrosity that he calls up Daedalus once again. Good year for business. Oh, it was. So, Daedalus constructs the labyrinth to hide Asterios from the world. I thought the labyrinth was for everyone's protection, to keep him in and everyone safe. Safe from what? From this child-eating beast. You see, that part never made sense to me. Bulls are herbivores. But they've got horns and they're, like, all ferocious. I mean, sure, if you lock them up all their life or, like, stick knives in them and try riding them. Okay, I get it. I get it. You're humanizing the monster. It's just a poor creature that really has feelings and deserves our pity. The Minotaur mask looks dolefully at Aster. What makes the Minotaur a monster? He's scary. Is a bull a monster? No. How about a human? That depends on the human in question. <laughs> Granted, but what I'm getting at is, what makes any monster a monster is that they're a, a mixture of things. Think about it. Werewolves? Part wolf, part man. Hmm. Vampires, uh, part blood-sucking bat, part man. But zombies, neither alive nor dead. It, it's the ambiguity that frightens us. You know, we, we like tidy categories and, and neat divisions. That's why there's so much blowback about gender neutrality and sexuality, for instance. Society bi favors binaries, not spectrums. <laughs> You're really throwing down the knowledge tonight. I don't mean to lecture. Are you kidding me? I've been lecturing all night. It's about time you picked up the slack. Very well then. So if the labyrinth wasn't created to protect the people from the Minotaur or protect the Minotaur from the people, why was it built? Well, I think it was built to protect Minos. But the Minotaur isn't even his. Yeah, but it's his fault. It was his lack of obedience that Poseidon cursed his wife. Cursed with an unnatural lust. Right. So Minos is ashamed and hides away the evidence. 
Sometimes it's easier to lock away what makes us uncomfortable than to deal with it. I guess so. <laughs> Aster and the Minotaur mask regard each other. Okay, so there's a monster in the maze. What's next? Oh, Theseus comes to town. That's right. So, Theseus is essentially a big, muscly hero bro. <laughs> He's roaming the land and the sea and the underworld, slaying all kinds of monsters. And when he's done with one, he moves on to the next. He's single-minded in his task of making slashes off his kill list, killing for the sake of killing. Dudes just want to stick their swords and things. Hero's gonna hero. <laughs> so, he hears about the Minotaur, and he comes over to Crete, volunteering to go into the labyrinth as one of the youths that was sacrificed each year, but planning on going in to defeat the monster. So Ariadne, uh, Asterios' half-sister, sees this as an opportunity to get the hell out of Crete. She's the only one who knows how to get out of the labyrinth once you go in, and she sees Theseus and all his brawny broness with like a huge, you know, boat, <laughs> and says, hey, I'll make sure you come out alive if you take me with you when you leave. And he says, red, for sure. <laughs> so she takes out a ball of thread, gives him one end of it, holds on to the rest, and waits by the entrance. Theseus enters the labyrinth, finds Asterios, and kills him. Whoa, whoa, wait, that is so messed up. What is? Ariadne helps kill her half-brother. She wants to get out of Crete. I mean, she thinks she's in love with Theseus. She'll never get another opportunity to go get away from her dysfunctional family, you know? Sometimes you've got to kill your hometown monster before you can move on with your life. So Ariadne and Theseus live happily ever after? <laughs> <laughs> now, girl, this is Greek mythology. Theseus follows the thread back out. He marries her as promised. They get aboard the ship, and Ariadne thinks she's finally free. But one day, when she's asleep, he stops off in a remote island, Naxos, picks her up, sets her on the sand, and leaves her there. What? <laughs> yeah. Asshole. To say the least. Eventually, he ends up marrying her sister, Phaedra. Bastard. Yeah, but uh, he gets what's coming to him. Does Phaedra have the hots for someone inconvenient? That's one way of putting it. <laughs> anyway, Ariadne wakes up on Naxos, and she realizes she's been abandoned. She betrayed her father and her mother. She killed her brother, and all for nothing. This is the ending you wished upon me. But then, Dionysus comes and visits her. Dionysus? Only the best demigod in all of Greek mythology. Ah. Uh, Dionysus, uh, Bacchus, Zagoras, prototype Jesus, whatever you want to call him. God of wine, god of theater, god of being high, god of getting naked in the woods and raving and purging out all the angst and fury and repression. God of queerness, god of liminality, god of being in between. So he visits Ariadne. He falls in love with her, and they have a beautiful life together on that island, telling stories and making music, cuddling. It's his friendship and love that turns her fate into a happy one and finally releases her from her past. But of course, Ariadne is mortal, and Dionysus is not. So when the time comes, Dionysus transforms Ariadne into a constellation. 
Corona Borealis. They both look upwards. <sighs> Which we would be able to see if it were not for the fucking full moon. How's that for an ending? Not too shabby. Good. Want the last bit of wine? Nah, it's all you. No, you. No, you. No, you. I insist. Okay. Dee forsakes the terrifically tiny tankard and drains the last sip directly from the bottle. Dee tucks the empty bottle into the backpack and begins to gather up all of the objects heretofore taken out of said backpack. Is it that time already? Yeah. Gotta get up early and work on my visa and stuff. Yeah, that's right. They spend a last moment just sitting and enjoying each other's company. What's next for you? I should probably start with finding my shoe. Looking in the direction of where she threw it. You want some help? Nah, you go ahead. Best of luck. <laughs> Dee shoulders the magic bag full of things. Hey, can you do me a favor? Of course. Aster picks up the scarf and hands it to Dee. Would you destroy this for me? Dee thinks, are you sure? Aster thinks, absolutely. Okay. Aster thinks, when are we going to see each other again? Dee thinks, down the road, we always do. They hug tightly. Oh, have such an amazing time. I will. Send letters. I will. Take care of yourself. I'll do my best. The embrace ends. All right. <laughs> Dee gets ready to leave. Aster nods and looks away, unable to watch her friend leave. Dee tugs on the loose end of the scarf. It begins to unravel. Dee presses the scarf into Aster's hands and walks away, holding the loose end. The scarf comes apart. Dee exits through the house, through the audience, weaving in different directions, pulling the string along. When the scarf has completely unraveled, Dee and Aster grip their respective ends, stretching the tension. Aster holds on. Aster holds on. Aster holds on. Aster lets go. The string passes through the house. The string exits. She watches it leave. She strokes the minotaur head softly, a goodbye. She turns to the wall behind her and pushes. A secret door is hidden in the bales. It swings open, exposing a dark beyond. She picks up the candle. She uses it to light her way out. End of play.
I guess, thanking Veronica for her amazing, amazing play. Thank you guys for starting a theater podcast. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's my um, two loves in yeah. one thing. So Awesome. Yeah. I, um, I, I love the concept, personally, of the monster in the play, which is not necessarily always like an actual monster it's like the big bad wolf that's looming over the play so if i can ask like what was the monster of the play for you aside from the minotaur was it yeah being half asian or was it like i feel like there's a lot of monsters in the play um you know there's like the monster of the father figure who is like you know because like arguably minos is like the monster of that whole story Mm -hmm. you know having like locked away I mean, maybe not his biological son, but still, like, a son of his in a certain way. And um, and then there's, like, the monster of, like, this inner anger that, you know, we all carry or that, you know, maybe transparently that I carry as being, like, a, a you know, a, a mixed-race person and that monster of not being content with that, not being content with my own identity. And then there's the, the great beast of sadness, which I feel like looms over us all in a certain way. So, you know, and then there's, like, the idea of, like, the mythological monster, which I think encompasses everything. So, yeah. What does that mean? Well, I feel like, I mean, what I like about mythology is you can kind of make of it what you will, and you can kind of take any, any character, any god, any monster, any, you know, any mortal, and basically make them stand for something that you identify with. And in that way, monsters are so great because they can symbolize anything that we fear, anything that we identify with when we're like angry and we can't control ourselves, anything that we can't understand. So, yeah. Awesome. That's amazing. That was great to hear. <laughs> I felt it. <laughs> um, well, for me, personally, I, I really love this story, and, and we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier today on the way to lunch, is uh, I was really interested in, in sending this to one of my really, really great friends, um, my freshman year roommate, who is half German, half Asian, and seeing what she thought about this and, and how she took it. But I also really connected with it, with like the whole daddy issues thing and and how did that that come into play for for this play well i mean very transparently it's it's i don't want to say it's completely autobiographical but there there is a lot of it that's just kind of plainly plainly me and in in the way that like none of my other plays have been and you know part of that is not you know, looking around at theater kind of as a theater practitioner and looking at all the plays that are available and, you know, there's so little for people who look like me or people who, you know, look different in, in you know, whatever different means. But there's, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's, there's not much room for, for diversity. And, um, and in that, you know, there's, there's only so many plays about being Asian or being Asian American and then there's like no plays that I could find that were specifically about being mixed race and specifically about being half Asian which has been my experience I'm like okay well that's something that I know and I might as well explore that and it just it seemed to fit in so well with uh, the whole Minotaur thing and it's it was a very personally cathartic thing to kind of 
match that with my own life. And not to say that everything is exactly my life, but I guess that's how it came about. And, and talking with um, a lot of my other friends who are, who are also of mixed race and, and this kind of having to, to come to terms with how the different pieces of your family fit together in ways that maybe other families don't. And, and how you can feel very different from the people that you should feel closest to. And that, you know, maybe that has to do with race, but I think more so it has to do with culture. Um, yeah. That's awesome. I just want to point out another, well, I guess I just want to touch upon another piece of your play that I found interesting about this archetype Asian, um, and you you discuss two in your play. There's the one that is with that older man who is dressed up, and she's telling him the right way to go, and he ignores her. And then there is the other one with the presumably white bros who are shocked that these Asian girls who are dressed in schoolgirl outfits do not watch anime and do not really read manga. And so what are your thoughts about those women and how, I guess, Asian women are perceived in the media? Like, how does, how does that make you feel? I know that's a lot. Sure. But. No, that's, that's a lot. I mean, I guess I'll say that, uh, to me, my portrayal of them in, in the play, they are to Aster monsters, um, and that she is as unfair in looking at them as perhaps other people are unfair in looking at her and making assumptions. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, I guess to me that was just a mirroring of the way that we all look at each other and, and have stereotypical expectations of who you should be or what sh you should be interested in or, or what you might be like. And, I mean, yes, as, as, as me, I have been people have had expectations of me to be a certain way and have been sorely disappointed. And I mean, I've been disappointed in those interactions as well, but I think that there is an, like, an objectification, like a making of the exotic of, of Asian women, particularly in our culture. And, and as someone who, who very much doesn't want to be associated with that, I find myself distancing myself from those images and thereby perhaps making monstrous those people who maybe genuinely identify that way mm -hmm. but you know it's like my perception of them is perhaps equally unfair right and you touch on something that that is so interesting and was the hammer hitting the nail on the head is that asian women are sexualized but asian men are desexualized and why why do you think that is that is so, and that's and that, that's something that's not really talked about. And I yeah, know in media, not. in media, there are not a lot of Asian men who are the romantic lead. Uh, they're usually, you know, the, the ninjas or, or the, the nerds or you know, like the dorky sidekick. Right. Or yeah. um, they're never the romantic leads. And I know that there was just previously a show on ABC where there was an Asian romantic lead. Unfortunately, it was not a good show, but like that was that was a big deal. Unfortunately, I mean, it got canceled because it wasn't a good show. But right. uh, you know, that was a big deal, and and it was 2014, 2015 for that to happen, um, and it's probably not going to happen again, unfortunately, uh, for a while. For a while, and and so why why do you think that is that is so? 
I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not nearly as societally or politically up to date as I would pretend to be. But I mean, I, I would say that it's along the same systemic lines that keep any true diversity from being in our media, you know, from having, for instance, an equal amount of good parts, good, strong, well-rounded parts for all genders, um, you know, or having, you know, any and all diversity in terms of like ability, in terms of like body type, in terms of race, ethnicity, cultural, you know, things, sexuality, everything, you know, there's, there's not enough of anything. So, I mean, I don't know that there is a specific thing that is holding back that, except that it's it's everything. It's the whole system. And that's not a satisfying answer. <laughs> but no, not, I mean, neither is, like, the, I mean, that's, that seems to be the answer as to, to why there isn't really media diversity, like you were explaining, in general. Yeah. And um, I mean, and, and maybe, maybe it comes down to the fact that it, it's all straight white rich men who are running the whole business. Valid. Well, I, <laughs> I also feel like it's straight white middle class men who are buying the business too. It's those guys, those bros in your story that are asking these Asian women, like, what manga do you like? Those are the ones that are going out and paying money for mm-hmm. the Amazon download of these shows. That's and true. And when I can't afford no Amazon downloads, right? I can't either. And so, and so, when that doesn't conform to what they want, to the fetish porn that they've been jacking off to day by day, then they're then they're not going to keep buying it. Yeah. Um. And that's the fucking world that that we live in. Yeah, it is. Unfortunately, sad but true. Um, I personally can't imagine walking up to some like any Asian person and going, what manga do you read or what? And like that being the first thing that comes out of my mouth. Like, it has happened. I like, I I just don't know how I react if I were to, to see that. And, and it's such a huge microaggression. And I think people of color just go through microaggressions and, and you kind of just deal with each one as they come along. But maybe it's because I'm not Asian that I've never experienced that. And I think I would be very like, pissed and I think it's probably the same how like someone like would come up to me and be like can I touch your hair and it's like what, what? like really is that the first thing that comes out of your mouth oh, yeah. <laughs> like like yeah. who are you like what are you doing yeah um, I feel like everyone has has something that they probably get more than other people right and that sucks and mm-hmm. I mean I'm hoping that this play that people listen to it that you know they just take a step back and think uh, before they say something like this, I mean, I hope we have readers that wouldn't say the first thing that they would say to an Asian person is, "What manga or anime do you read?" <laughs> or, or, or watch. You, you must like boba tea. Yeah. I don't uh, even like, know what that is. <laughs> Welcome to California. I like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> so we have to get boba tea though, before you go. How do you not know boba tea? Is that the one with the bubbles? Yeah, tapioca yes. balls. The tapioca balls. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> I so good, Everyone it's says so it's good. so good. I remember eating the bubbles, and I was like, mm. it feels like. It feels like <laughs> I don't like this. I don't know. It feels like worms it's on your mouth. It's just like plastic. <laughs> it's gross. But it's delicious. But again, that would not be the first thing I would ask someone. <laughs> To be like, let's get bubble tea, guys. I mean, maybe that's the thing, though. I mean, maybe, I don't know. 
we're right now we're like in an artistic setting. Everyone here like seems to be pretty open-minded and artistically minded, and we're all of like different backgrounds and whatnot. It's kind of like we're not the people who would come up with that sort of thing because we're yeah, used true. to being Valid. in this kind of diverse, I mean, quote unquote, you know, but like environment where we're all here and we're all looking at each other as people and not as, you know, an idea of a person. So I mean, that's that's the problem though. Perhaps is that like, you know maybe these people who do interact in the world this way, like they aren't involved in these types of artistic communities and kind of, mm, yeah, in I these spaces. I feel bad for you, QAnon. <laughs> um, so what's the, what do you think is the process to affect those people? The people that aren't going to listen to this, honestly. I mean, what's, what's the process for affecting change oh, God. in that Dun dun dun! You're in the hot spot. No, if I knew the answer to that, I would have a TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, I think what I come down to as I chisel away at this like big existential block of like how do we foster a good world? um, It's that there's there's maybe not much that you can do, but you can as cheesy and as dinky as it sounds like you can be kind in your own day and you can put forward the type of energy and interaction that you would want to receive and that you know maybe you don't need to be argumentative to people that that say these things and I mean yeah you can be angry and and I will be but maybe you don't have to call them cock goblins like maybe (laughs) you can can try to create an interaction where you're like hey I'd prefer it if you didn't talk to me that way, but I hope you have a good day, you know? Yeah, cock yeah. <laughs> cock um, yeah I, I don't know. I don't know that there's, there's not an easy way to solve any of this, but I think we all just do the best we can. And I think for me to know that that's the best I can do is the best I can do, like to kind of be like that is enough and that is okay has to be have to believe that to a certain extent to have some peace mm. otherwise it's endless yeah. our lesson I guess kids is be kind to everyone because it really goes a long way as we see in society today uh, what did you have for breakfast? because yeah. we said we were going to ask you that oh my goodness I woke up so sick so <laughs> I had some chicken soup which my lovely partner made for me last oh. night after he worked a 12 hour day yes partner yes and because I was talking with this with, um, with a couple of our guests what is your what was your favorite child, childhood TV show oh my gosh this is really dorky. I, I didn't watch a lot of TV shows. I went to the library and picked up like DVDs, or well, not, you know, VHSs, because I would, yeah, <laughs> be, let's be real. And this is, okay, this is embarrassing. I would watch the 90s version of Pride and Prejudice, like the BBC. Colin <laughs> <laughs> oh oh Firth and Jennifer No Alex. one was oh, expecting oh, that oh, response. Oh, <laughs> From when I was like a little kid, and there was one day, um, so my mom would make me take vitamins every every morning, you know, uh, for health reasons. But like not not like fun, like colorful, chewy kid ones, like the big adult ones that are like, you know, meant to suffocate you. Yeah. And she'd like give me a fucking handful of them every morning, 
And I, at some point, was like, I cannot swallow these down my child throat. So <laughs> I would put, the, I would pretend to swallow them, and instead, I would, like, and then cough and like have like you know with my hand in a fist with all the pills inside and stuff them under the cushion of my seat. And like there's like a little, it was like a wicker chair type situation. So there's like a little pocket there. And one day she went to vacuum and she pulled the chair apart and there was just like pills <laughs> all <laughs> over the floor. And my horrible, horrible punishment for this act of treachery and deceit no. was that I could not watch Pride and Prejudice for <laughs> <laughs> So that's, that is exactly how dorky I am. <laughs> because you didn't take your vitamins. Yeah. I've since learned to swallow vitamins. <laughs> do, you, do you still take vitamins? Not, not that often. <laughs> okay. And when you do, what are they? Uh, you know, the horrible adult kind that are like large and meant to suffocate you. Oh, they have chewy vitamins yeah, right now. That's what fun. I use. I don't feel like yeah, I deserve like them. <laughs> They're so yummy. Uh, so what should we end on? Do you, do you have anything else you want to talk about or say about your play, about your life, about your cat lamp? <laughs> anything in general? Nothing in Does anybody have a question? Where did you get that cat yeah, lamp, though? Because behind, it looks like a squid of sorts. Yeah, yeah. my my sister made that one, and my brother-in-law made the, the cat lamp one. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Solid. Solid looking lit up animals around her thank apartment you. here. Veronica, thank you for your fucking awesome play and thank you for hosting us in your beautiful home thank yes. you eric um, and thank you yvonne for being here and for making this happen and for producing this podcast and yeah for traveling all the way out here it was it really was fucking awesome yeah like, we had a really intimate audience tonight and i feel like that just made it feel like a tiny little two or three hours of family time yeah. like we just yeah. kind of got together and we drank a bunch and we got to know fun. just like all good families yeah <laughs> but it was really fucking awesome the world that you created was awesome and the world that became in this room was such a joy to be a part of so it was really cool thank, thank you. you thank you guys um we should thank our actors too because we didn't do that yet right playing aster was suni kiernan <laughs> And for the role of D, it was Jessica Greenstreet. And for stage directions, we had our very own playwright, Veronica Chu. And our musician tonight was Bobby. Was that right? Bobby. Bobby. Oh, you thought the I thought awesome I said musical it stylings wrong. of Bobby. Uh, other recordings we missed. I feel like we were sponsored by this this pier. <laughs>
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.